Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. And so today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Jesus told his disciples there, were, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcome into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Seems like Everett was doing really well until I held him, and then things went downhill from there, but hopefully he's okay. I promise I didn't do anything. There was, uh, there was a day when we had kids that little too. Uh, in fact, we now, my wife and I now have two grandkids, and uh, man, we remember those days when we were young. In fact, uh, our daughter, Emma, who was actually up here, was six months old when, we, uh, uh, when I graduated from seminary and I got my first job in Iowa as a youth pastor. And, and we had decided, you know, wh when we first got married, that she was going to stay home with the kids for the first few years of their lives. And actually, she ended up doing that uh, for seven years. Now, I was a little bit surprised because when I got a job as a youth pastor, we were not only able to survive on my youth pastor salary, but we actually were able to buy a house. Now, houses in Cedar Rapids, Iowa in 1997 were a little bit, we paid $78,000 for our house. So, and it was a decent house too. So uh, that maybe is a little different than yours these days. But uh, anyway, we didn't have a lot left over, but we made enough to get by. Uh, and like I said, we did that for about seven years or so, and then uh, by that time we had had two more, and our kids were seven, four, and two years old. And uh, one of the things that I started finding was that Anne was, 
well, when I would get home from work being uh, maybe a little bit increasingly on edge. Uh, in fact, I can remember one day I came home and steam started shooting out her ears and her head spun all the way around. And Okay, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, right? But at that point, we realized maybe it's time for Anne to go to work. And, uh, and so she looked and, and got a great job. In fact, it's the job that she still has today, all these years later. Uh, she, uh, she got that job. And, and of course, we were really excited about this because this was going to double our income. And, uh, and that was really cool. And, uh, and you know, we, we, had, we got a great deal on childcare and all that. And so we just thought we are going to be drowning in money. We're not going to know what to do with all the money that we have. And, uh, you know, if we, made it, if we made it through on one income, then we should be able to do great on two incomes. But then something kind of strange happened. Adding another income didn't result in having more money. It was kind of interesting. Uh, according to our budget, on paper, we should have had about $900 a month left over from our expenses. And yet, even after a while, we were scraping by just the same way that we were before when we only had one income. And so I decided to do some investigating, and those were the days when you couldn't just automatically import all your transactions. You had to keep your receipts and enter them all in there and categorize them. And so I started working on the budget a little bit and uh, entered them into program by hand, sorted them by category. And what I found was that it was true. Our income really did double when Anne went to work as well, but we were not making any progress. And the reason is maybe not quite what you think. You see, we weren't buying expensive TVs or fancy cars or anything like that, but we were spending a ridiculous amount of money on things like eating out and snacks and trips to Target that should have been $50 were $100. I'm sure you probably know what I'm talking about there. A bunch of unnecessary little things here and there, and we didn't even realize it. And it was at that point that we decided to take a, a financial class and that was really helpful simply because it taught us that we need to pay attention to what we are spending our money on. Imagine that. What a, what a crazy idea. We needed to be more aware of where our money was going. And just being intentional about money made all the difference in the world. Now, I think most Christians know that the Bible talks a lot about money. In fact, I think maybe Terry shared uh, the other day that it talks more about money than just about any other subject. Uh, and, and there are always, of course, people who subscribe to like a prosperity gospel who say that if you're faithful, then God will bless you with lots of money and cars and big houses and all of that. Uh, but there, the truth is, is that there is a lot in the book of Proverbs and all throughout the New Testament that actually views money less as a blessing or a reward and more as a trap and even a rival God, what we might call an idol. And since we, don't, since we know that we shouldn't make money an idol, oftentimes people will do their best just to not care about money at all, to not think about it, to not learn about it. Because, you know, if you don't think much about it, then it can't be an idol, right? Wrong. In fact, the truth is, is that when we don't think wisely about money, that's when money starts to become a problem. 
And, and this is a point that Jesus actually makes very explicitly from our parable in, uh, in Luke chapter 16. We call it the parable of the shrewd manager. And, and it's one of the most challenging parables of Jesus. Not just challenging to understand, although it is that, but also challenging to live out when we do understand it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage and uh, we're going to see what it has to say to us. All right. The parable goes like this. There was a rich man whose master or whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, Jesus is referring to an arrangement here, what we might call uh, a steward. Okay, It was someone, and oftentimes it was either a slave or it could have been a free person, who was put in charge of managing the wealth of a particular family. And oftentimes he would live with the family. He would you know, get all of his, uh, get, get all of his income from it, maybe have his own quarters in the family compound. And the master would entrust him with all of the business affairs of the household. Uh, maybe think about an arrangement like Joseph and Potiphar in the Old Testament. Okay, now this was a, a pretty enviable position because the manager, even if he was a slave, would rise to the social status of his master. And, and so he would get to rub shoulders with the elite of society. It was a pretty cushy job for him. Well, one day the rich manager, or the rich man determined that the manager was not doing a very good job. It doesn't say he was embezzling or stealing from him or anything. It just says that he was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, of course, the boss didn't get rich by allowing this kind of thing to go unchecked. And so he dealt with it very swiftly and he fired the manager. And for the manager, then, this creates a crisis. Since he was getting up there in age, his uh, job prospects were kind of limited. Uh, he was older, so manual labor wasn't really much of an option. And besides, he had this reputation to maintain, and he didn't want other people to see him out digging ditches. And, of course, you know, begging for him, that was no option either. And so what was he supposed to do? Well, Jesus says, well, then the man had a brilliant idea. This is what he says in verse, verse 4. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. All right. Now, a little bit of background here. We've talked about this before. But Jesus lived in what we would call a collectivist society. And that means that one of the most important expectations of social life there was something called reciprocity. In other words, if I wanted to be friends with you, I could create a partner with, partnership with you by giving you some kind of a gift. And then that would create an obligation for you to return that, not return that gift to me, but, but, to, uh, but to create an ongoing relationship where that's mutually beneficial for the both of us. And, uh, and so this was the kind of thing that he was trying to do. Um, uh, his plan then was to go out and to essentially give these gifts of uh, a break on their bill to these people, uh, to, to, his, to his boss's debtors, so that then they would create this friendship that would be mutually beneficial for the both of them. And so he goes to them and it says one of them owed about 900 gallons of oil. And he said, well, just give me 450 and, uh, and we'll call it even. Another one owed him a thousand bushels of wheat, and he says, "Well, make it eight hundred, and uh, and we'll be good to go." Now, of course, this made both the manager and the boss very very uh, popular with the debtors, and because of the societal expectations, they would have then felt obligated to return the favor. And now, suddenly, the manager had all kinds of options for what to do. Jesus ends the parable by saying, 
you should be like this manager. Now, I've always had a bit of a problem with this parable. Do you guys see some problems here as well? All right, Mark, thank you. Uh, and the reason is, is because I've all, the way I've always read it is, is that the, the manager made good for himself by defrauding the, his boss. And, uh, and, um, but I think there's actually a better way to read the parable that I think makes more sense of what Jesus says. You see, as I started consulting the experts, the great majority of them said that the manager wasn't actually shortchanging his boss. Most likely what he was doing was he was cutting his own commission. He was cutting it out of the picture. And so what he could do is he could reduce the debtor's bill and the boss would still get his money. And so his plan didn't cost the boss any money. But what he was doing was he was sacrificing his own short-term profit for the sake of his future. And Jesus says, you need to think like that. You need to be like that, to be willing to forego short-term gain for a long-term gain. And so then his explanation begins in verse 8, where he says this. He said, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, what he's talking about here is that the Jewish uh, faith divided the, the world or divided time, history, into two ages, this age and the age to come. In fact, the word that Jesus uses when he says the people of this world, he uses for world the word ion, uh, which basically is where we get the word eon from, which is a long period of time. So they're saying there are two ages, the, this age and the age to come. Today, you know, Christians would probably say this life and the afterlife or this life and eternity. And so we divide it up in that way. And so then uh, Jesus says the problem with this life the, the, the people of the world who live for this life is that this life is only temporary. That at some point, it's going to be taken away. And so what he's saying is, is he says, the people of this age are smarter and more strategic about gaining, tempor uh, about gaining temporary things than you are about gaining eternal things. You should at least be as strategic as they are because you are investing in something that is far more valuable. You see, Jesus' point is not that his followers should think less about money. As a matter of fact, he's saying, actually, you should think more about money. We should be more thoughtful. We should be more strategic about how we use it. Because what we're doing is, is we are using temporary wealth for eternal ends. And trading something temporary for something eternal is always a good investment. And so the question then is, is, well, how do we do that? How do we invest? Well, look at how Jesus continues in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Well, that clears it up, doesn't it? <laughs> what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, if you've been following in the book of Luke, one of the things you'll know is that one of the themes that Luke hits harder than just about any other theme is that Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. And we see it in Luke chapter 4 when he goes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah chapter 58 and talks about his mission statement. Or a couple of weeks ago, Holly uh, talked about the, the parable of the banquet where Jesus says this. He says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends 
your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid, right? There's the reciprocity there. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. Okay, he's talking about reciprocity. The people of this world find people that can bolster their status and benefits in this life. And Jesus doesn't necessarily criticize that system, right? But it, but it is, it's just short-sighted, even though it was the way the world worked. But you see, people of this world spend all of their time and energy and finances to make friends that can benefit them in this age. But Jesus says that out of gratitude of everything that God has given to us, uh, that if we do that for the poor and the outcasts, then God will repay us in eternity. Why is that? Well, because all throughout scripture, God identifies with the poor and the people who are on the outside. Okay, and let me show you how serious Jesus is about this, right? Um, Jesus follows up this parable. There's a, a couple of verses in there that seem to be about something else. But then right after that, he goes into another parable. Um, and, uh, and it's a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we separate out these parables, but actually they're intended to go together. In fact, the second parable sheds light on the first one. And, and here's how it happens. Jesus says there's a rich man who lived in luxury every day. And there was a poor man, a beggar that's named Lazarus, who laid outside the rich man's gate every day, hoping that he could just sift through the guy's trash and get something to eat. Well, one day, in fact, on the same day, they both died. And Jesus says that the poor man was immediately brought to heaven and got to hang out next to Abraham. But the rich man went to Hades where he himself was in torment. And this is a great example of Luke's theme of the great reversal. Um, and we see it all throughout the book. Well, of course, the rich man looks at this situation. He's not very happy about it. And so he cries out to Abram. He says, send Lazarus to give me just a drop of water for my tongue. And one of the members of my small group yesterday um, observed and said, man, it just seems like the rich man here is expecting Lazarus to serve him, even in the afterlife. And that's exactly right. That's what he was doing. But of course, Abraham replies to him and says, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted and you are here in ag agony. Now, notice about this parable here that Jesus doesn't say that the rich man was, uh, was in, in hell because he intentionally oppressed Lazarus. It doesn't say he stole from him. doesn't say he took advantage of him. In fact, all he does is he squanders what God had entrusted to him so he could live in luxury. And now he's in Hades and Lazarus is in his e eternal dwelling. In other words, the rich man did not make friends with Lazarus, and now he's left without someone to advocate for him. And what we learn is, is that our world has a particular kind of economy, but God's economy is different. And so we need to adjust how we think. And we have to be careful, right? Because I know a lot of this can sound like we're trying to earn our salvation or earn our way to God. 
But the truth of the matter is, is that because we're all sinners, none of us can claim to deserve anything that we have. Grace, forgiveness, any of the blessings that God gives us. We can't claim to be owed any of that. And so what happens is, is that God makes the first move. Well, the first thing he does is he gives us everything that we have, right? Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Okay? Everything belongs to God. And he graciously allows us to use it. And actually, the Apostle Paul says, even enjoy it. But the problem is, is that we have a tendency to squander, not just our wealth, but squander just about everything in sin. And so when we did that, God came down in the person of Jesus and died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and invited into relationship with him. And again, none of us deserves this. God's grace is unmerited. But at least according to Jesus, it's not unconditional. Because to accept God's gift, he expects a relationship. He expects a reciprocal relationship. And we do that through gratitude. But, of course, how do we do that? What are the things that God asks us to do to sort of reciprocate the relationship? Well, there are a number of things if we look in Scripture. Uh, one of them is public praise, kind of what we're doing here. We get together and we sing and we learn and, and all of that. Uh, for those who are part of liturgical churches, you do liturgy and, and all of those things. That's a great way to return praise to God. Now, of course, doing religious things like that is the easy response for a lot of people, and it can actually inoculate us to things that Jesus says are more important. But it is certainly a way that we can return praise to God. Another way that we can return praise to God is by living free from sin, right? Because when people who call ourselves Christians represent God well in the world, it, uh, it makes God's name great. And when we don't do that, when we behave badly, then it gives God a bad name. And he attaches himself to us. And so when we live free from sin, when we strive to be better people, that's a way that we can return praise. Of course, we can also give financially uh, to the church and uh, we can give spiritual gifts to, to God or our energy or relational or all of that stuff. We can give that all back to God. And all of those things are great, they're good, and they're necessary. But all over Scripture, whether it's in the law or the prophets, or especially in the book of, of Luke, over and over and over, there is something more fundamental to our response than any of those. That we are called to express our gratitude through acts of mercy to the poor and to those who get pushed to the margins of society. As the prophet Micah says, he's already shown you what's good, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And, and there's a kind of formula that we looked at a little bit earlier about this reversal or, or about this uh, reciprocity in Luke. It, so first of all, God gives us grace and he expects something in return, but he doesn't necessarily expect us to give it back to him. But instead, what he says is we repay God with our care and concern for what the book of Matthew calls the least of these. And we might not get a reward in this life from it, but God will reward us in eternity. Well, Jesus goes on. He says, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And so then what should we do? Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. All right now, I hope this is starting to come together for you. God associates with the poor 
and the displaced and the broken and the hurting. And so what we do for them, we do for him. That's why Jesus says in the book of Matthew in in, uh, 25, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done for me. And Jesus says that's uh, how intentional that that how intentional we are with our money will actually play a part or is actually an indicator of how fit we are for eternity. Look at verse 10. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Okay, now you see what he's saying there. He's saying we have been given care of resources and possessions that in light of eternity are really not all that important. And so if you spend your life strategizing about how to make this life more comfortable and secure, then you're probably not a good fit for the next life. Maybe you wouldn't like it that much. And this is what Jesus means to be trustworthy. All right, so what does it look like to be trustworthy? With what God gave us. Well, first of all, you should know that it's more than just being honest and ethical with our finances, but it's not less than that. I mean, we certainly should be that. But he's talking about being wise and strategic. And so, according to Jesus, you need to take the time to learn about money, to learn about how the the allures that it has for us, the dangers of it, but also how it works in this world, how to be strategic, how to build wealth and all of that. And he says, if you don't do that, then you're being wasteful, right? That's not according to me. That's according to Jesus, right? The second thing to be trustworthy is to remember the purpose of money and possessions. You see, at its core, money is a tool. It's not a goal in and of, it fa- in and of itself. In fact, when it starts to become a goal is when it starts to actually draw us in and become an idol for us. Okay, but it is a tool that God entrusts us for really a couple of things. Okay, one thing is that he gives it to us to be able to provide for the needs of our family. And he really does want us to be able to do that. Uh, and, and sometimes I have, to, I have to say this explicitly because there are some people who are very religiously zealous, and I'm not saying that in a, in a bad way, who, who would say, well, we need to all live at a poverty level. We need to be ascetics and just give everything away all the time. And I don't believe that the Bible necessarily calls everyone to do that. If God calls you to do that, then by all means, do it. But I don't think he calls everyone to to do that. And now notice I didn't say that he gave it to us so that we could live in luxury or enhance our social status. Okay, the Apostle Paul says, be content with the necessities of life. And so he gives it to you to be able to take care of your family. But the second purpose, I think, is one that people often don't consider. And actually, this is maybe the most important one, is that we are entrusted with money for God's eternal purposes. That's the reason why we have it. In fact, that's the exact point that Jesus makes in this parable. And so what does it look like practically investing money and possessions in eternity? Well, one of the best people that I found in, uh, in being able to articulate this, uh, a strategic use of money, is actually a guy named John Wesley. Um, ours is a Wesleyan church. We name our denomination after him. And I think this is probably one of his uh, most poignant, one of his best teachings. 
And, uh, and he has a famous sermon called uh, On the Use of Money, and it's based on this very passage. And in it, he lays out three steps or three principles for using money. And it's this, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Okay, so let's take a look at those three, and uh, maybe that'll help us to, as we start to think about how to use our money strategically for kingdom purposes. First, let's talk about make all you can. Now, there are many people who mistakenly believe that the Bible tells us that money is the root of all evil, and it actually does not say that. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, money itself, though, is morally neutral. It's neither good nor bad, but it's a powerful tool. It's kind of like electricity. It can be used for great good, but it can also be very harmful if you use it wrongly. And so you can use it for good things and you can use it for bad things, depending on your attitude. Well, since money isn't bad in and of itself, and because it can be such a powerful tool for God's work, it's okay. And in fact, John Wesley says, and Jesus says, it's wise and strategic to earn as much as possible. As much as you are able. And man, there are some of you who are really good at that and praise God for that. Now, of course, he says there are limits to this, right? Earn as much as you are able, but, but here are some of the limits that he puts on it. First, he says that you shouldn't be so focused on gaining money that you endanger your health by working super long hours or that you can't have good rhythms of work and rest. Okay, so there are limits that he places there. Also, don't focus on it at the expense of your family or other responsibilities that you have in life. You know, it's been very common in our world, in our society, for people to sacrifice their family to gain more wealth. And Wesley says, no, 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 no. No, we don't do that. And of course, don't make money through unethical or, uh, or through uh, the exploitation of other people. Don't be involved in industries that are harmful to, uh, to people. But he says, within those limits, man, make all the money that you can because you can leverage it then for kingdom purposes. Work diligently, use good time management, understand the system, understand how finance works, and gain all you can. Okay, the second thing he says is save all you can. Now, when he says that, he's not talking about hoarding it. He's not saying put it in the bank and, and let it sit there, all right? What he means is, is don't be wasteful. Don't spend, don't do a lot of unnecessary spending. You know, a lot of people think that it's important to have a, a budget when you don't have much money. But actually, the truth is, is that the more money you have, the more you need a budget. Because when you're living paycheck to paycheck, you have a built-in budget, right? If I, if I buy this TV, I can't pay my rent, and I don't have any place to put that TV, right? But it's when you start making more money than what you really need, when you really, if you want to be strategic with it, then you need to have a budget, because you need to know where all of this money is, is going, and so you have to start to be more disciplined with what you have. Now, there is a, a debate to be had about things like, should I buy the cheapest thing possible that may not be as of higher quality? Or can I buy something that costs more, that is higher quality and will last longer? And I'll let you decide that for yourself. Okay? But I think that one of the things that he's talking about is he's saying, don't buy things for their social status. Buy things for their usefulness. And if you buy them for their usefulness, if they're going to last you longer, then you, know, you can make that investment. But if you're buying it uh, so that you can look good for other people, then he would say that's not a good use of anything. Okay, and the key here is to pay attention what you're spending money on. Have a budget. Evaluate your expenses regularly. Don't 
be wasteful and often ask yourself the question, do I really need this? Now, one of the things that that Wesley was famous for was not just his teachings about money, but uh, how he actually handled money. Uh, He lived in the 1700s, and at that time in England, you could live comfortably on about 30 pounds a year. And that was actually his salary the first year that he was in ministry. He was a a parish uh, priest in the Anglican church and also a uh, a professor at Oxford, and he made 30 pounds a year. And and he felt pretty comfortable on that. In fact, he started to live uh, in a a little bit of luxury. And in fact, in time, he became a sought-after speaker and author to the point that one year in his ministry, he made the equivalent in one year of 1,400 pounds. Okay, think about the difference there. I don't know what the equivalent is, but it's, uh, the equivalent today would be like millions of dollars. But what he ended up doing was after about the second or third year of his ministry, he decided he was going to live on 30 pounds a year and give the rest away. So he was one that, that lived out this principle. And, and the point is this, is that you know, most likely you're getting raises and things like that. And in fact, probably, you know, if I, were, if I were Wesley, I would maybe consider cost of living increases and things like that. But anyway, that, that the point is, is that as you make more money, rather than trying to raise your standard of living, raise your standard of giving. This was Wesley's example. Okay, and so that leads us to his third point. Wesley says, finally, give all you can. Now, Wesley didn't always have this attitude toward money. In fact, his first year or two, he enjoyed his prosperity and, uh, and, uh, and kind of lived like it. But he writes in his journal, he says, there was one day when he had just come home from purchasing some expensive art for his walls in his room, when one of the chambermaids came to the door. And he noticed that she was wearing only a thin linen gown, and it was the middle of winter. So feeling compassion for her, he reached into his pocket to give her some money to buy a coat, but found that he didn't have enough. And in that moment, the words from the Bible came to him and asked him whether God would be able to say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. And this is what he wrote in his journal about that moment. This is what came to his mind. He says, you have, talking to himself, you have adorned your walls with the money that might have screened this poor creature from the cold. Oh, justice, oh, mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? The needs of people should never catch us off guard. It's all around us. Should never catch us by surprise. And so plan for it. Okay? Put it in your budget. Say no to some things so that you will be able to afford to give to the needs that come up all of the time. Make some plans to to be able to give regularly and to do it intentionally. Okay, don't just give the leftovers because if you're like me, if that's what you do, oftentimes you don't have anything left over. So plan it, make it in your budget, be intentional and regular about your giving. 
In fact, when you came, you should have received uh, a sheet, not just songs, but there's a sheet there in the middle. And on the back of that page, there are actually some organizations that if you wanted to start to do some regular giving that, that you could certainly give to. And, and we've listed them out. Some of them we partner with. Some of them we just know do a great job of, of caring for the poor and, and all of that. And so we just wanted to give you some ideas. And maybe you have some, some ideas or some organizations of your own that, that you support as well. Okay, but hopefully this will get you started on a lifestyle of generosity. Now, of course, giving to organizations is always a good start, but it's actually more than that. Because you can still, you know, give some extra money to some of these organizations, but not really care about people. But what you can do is you can also take things that you already have, your possessions that you have, and repurpose them, right? If you have a house, Give it to God and say, my purpose in this house is to, be to, to, uh, to show biblical hospitality to people. And what that means is, is like in Luke chapter 14, he says, not necessarily, and, and it's okay sometimes to invite your friends over, that's okay. But, but also use it as an opportunity to invite people you wouldn't normally invite over, or people who wouldn't normally get an invitation from someone else. People who are in need, associate with people that you wouldn't normally associate uh, with, okay? Uh, not just people who can boost your status, but with people who you can be open-handed with. Be open-handed with other possessions, with cars, with tools, with whatever you have. With your time, if there, if there are projects that need to be done, you know, that's another great way to use what you have for the purpose of the kingdom. Be intentional about making everything that you have available to people who are in need. Well, at the end of it, many people don't think that mundane things like money and budgeting are a spiritual issue. But the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus says they are. And so I think it's something that we ought to take seriously. And so I hope that as we go through this, that you're able to not just, you know, come here and sit in the, on a nice sunny day and listen to a message, but you're able to, to, to incorporate it into your life. Maybe go home and start to look at your budget and say, what are some ways that we can make my budget reflect more of eternity than what's happening here and now. Jesus says that money is a spiritual issue. And so if you take him seriously, then you'll take him at his word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that, that challenges us in the way that we think. And so, Lord, I just pray for all of us here. I know that uh, as, as I was preparing for the message, I was experiencing a lot of conviction myself. And just saying, man, I could be so much more intentional about what I give. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that, uh, that you would help us, that you would give us the strength to not think about this age, but think about the age to come. And to think about the people that you love, that you associate with, that we oftentimes refuse to. And that we would see in their face your face. So God, give us the strength to be able to do that. And I pray that as we do that, that it would come not from just a sense of obligation, but it would come from a sense of gratitude. You are such a gracious and generous God. You give us everything that we have. And, and so I pray that we would do all of this out of thanksgiving to you. And as we do that, 
God, we pray that we would be trustworthy and that you would prove yourself faithful to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.